Thank you, Cersei. And I want to say this before we offer our prayer to God. As I looked out over this group tonight, I just have already offered a prayer of thanks to God for so many miracles that I see out there. We just thank God for you, and we want God to know that tonight, and we want to give Him credit for every good thing He does for us. May we bow together. And Heavenly Father, as we come to Thee tonight, we are so conscious that our strength is not in human flesh, but it is in the Spirit of God. And we know, our Heavenly Father, that Thou hast been our God in times past, and still are, and the God of the future, regardless of what has happened in the past, that in the future Thou dost love us, and Thou dost care for us. We remember 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us know, Heavenly Father, in our own family, how that we have prayed, how we have earnestly besought the power of God in the lives of those very dear to us who are beset with the problem of drinking, and how we thank God for an organization like this which makes it possible over the years to help people to overcome this problem in their life. Thank you for these miracles that are out here, and we do not take credit with an organization. We give you credit, Heavenly Father, for every gift that cometh from the Father above. Now be with the program tonight. May it be that our hearts shall be blessed and that our hearts shall sing within us when we realize how bright the future is always with God. Though the outlook is dark, the uplook is always good. We pray in our Savior's name and for his sake. Amen. You need that. Can we come to order, please? That's one way to grow in AA, you get on this platform. My name is Hal, and I'm an alcoholic. It's only through the grace of God and the help of each in this program that I've been without any alcohol since the 11th of December, 1954. I think the reason why... I was fortunate enough to be your chairman or MC tonight is because I don't talk much. You who go to AA meetings will appreciate a silent chairman. And I'll tell you that the reason I don't talk much is because I can't talk very fast. So uh, I'll give you an announcement or two. This is being taped, and you can get tapes from Bill O'Neill. Just give him your your preference, and uh, he will take care of it. We've got a, a good program here tonight, and it brings to mind to me the first, that when I first came to Texas, uh, the boss told me to make estimates on these big buildings and said, do you think you can do it? I said, well, it's a lot of little buildings put together. And that's what I see here. The, the groups that I have talked before are not quite this large as a rule. This is a wonderful turnout. It's a wonderful convention. And it brings to me to mind uh, my life, uh, which 
was not when I became 21 years old was a turning point, not when I joined the church, not when I got married, but when I, December 11th, when I stopped drinking. If you can imagine a terrific liability being turned into an asset, the same liability becoming the greatest asset I have today is through December 11th when I came into AA. It, seeing this crowd reminds me of the girl that was trying to get her glasses fitted. And it's so true. She was squirming. He said, well, I can't, not quite too much there. And this goes on for quite a while. And he says, well, this takes time. He says, we'll, we'll just, just relax and we'll, we'll get it right. She says, it does make it a whole lot harder when you're getting them for your sister. <laughs> so, in AA, it's so true that we have to see this program through our own eyes. We don't change the 12 steps. We don't change the fundamentals. Maybe we don't learn too much, but we begin to absorb. And through absorption, I have found that my life began at a little over 40. And it's wonderful. I wouldn't swap it for anything any of the years that went ahead before then. Today, my wife and I have a wonderful time. She's an Al-Anon. Now, beloved Lewis this morning spoke of Al-Anons that were wise and understanding. Well, mine was neither. But you know something? When I got into AA and she started going around Al-Anon, she was not only wise, understanding, but she lost all that perceptive uh, insight that was giving me trouble before. And she's even compassionate today. <laughs> not only for other people, but for me too, which I appreciate. Today, we have a speaker tonight that came over from Garden City, New York, down. And Yev G. is going to be introduced by Sacy. My name is Serge and I'm an alcoholic. And with the help of God and you people, I've been sober since May 10th, 1946. And this thing is fixed up for short guys like back here, and I'm straddle of it, you see. <clears throat> they told me to, that my only duty was to introduce this guy and sit down. That's what I'm going to do. Uh, the reason I have the privilege of introducing him is because nobody else will. And uh, you can know what kind of character he is. In 1949... I met Yev. We were, uh, I was on the staff of Yale School at TCU at Fort Worth, and uh, what little I didn't know about alcoholism, I was winding it up with his help. And uh, with Dr. Jelinek, we, we learned the rest of it, and I almost got drunk after I learned all of it. So... We, along with Mary D., who is here with, and will 
Her husband will speak tomorrow, Dr. Ed. Uh, Mary and Yev and I went on a speaking tour around over Texas. And, uh, preacher, we baptized quite a few. <laughs> Uh, over the country. I know we went to Waco, and there, but we had a wonderful time. I could tell you a lot of things about this guy. He used to live in New York City, but he left on account of his belief. He got to believe in other people's goats were his, and he went over to Garden City. So without, uh, he's going to tell you his story in his own way, and I'm not going to say anything about it. Yev G. from Garden City. Give him a hand. You know Thank you, Mr. Whaley. I'm Yev, and I'm an alcoholic. I, Mr. Whaley is my manager. He programs me. He says, you go here, you meet him, be there, get to the TV station, so-and-so will be at the airport, be at the meeting, meet so-and-so, and this is what I want you to say. So, I do it. So he sent me a program, Vance Flyer, which I guess you all got. He says, magnitude of the problem in our role of recovery. So I called him up long distance. I said, I'm a drunk. I want to talk about AA. I want to share with my drunks. He said, that's all right. Just talk about the magnitude of the problem, that's all. <laughs> so first of all, I want to bring with me the congratulations and best wishes of the Long Island groups, and thank you for having a damn Yankee on the program. And they're all with you in spirit, and I would say it's the same program up in northern countries it is here. And just to uh, fulfill my boss's request in three minutes, I will say that when I came into AA, there were many fewer than there are today. We estimated there were five million alcoholics. Today we estimate there are nine million. We always estimated there were four people affected seriously enough to the point of sickness to affect them. And that is why the family is so important. And that is why we're so grateful to Al-Anon for what it's done. I was at a dinner party celebrating the anniversary of a chap, Freddie, and Lois was there. This was up in Westchester. And she said, Yev, there's good news. We're going to have a formal opening of an office for the family groups that are spreading around the country and need some centralization. Well, that to me was a thrilling thing. Every day something interesting, exciting happens. I didn't expect to be down here for this convention, and I want to thank you for having me. And so I think it also says on the program our role in recovery. Our role in recovery is just what we've heard in the last day and a half, what we'll hear the next day and a half. It's to help the sick alcoholic. I am responsible. When the hand is held out 
in need for help, we grasp that hand, and that is our role wherever we may be. So now that I've followed my boss's instructions, I'll get on with this. Back when the dinosaurs ruled the earth, <laughs> a lot of people thought I was having a problem. It reminds me of that story of the three girls who were on television. One was an international quiz show, and there was a French girl, an American girl, and a British girl. The British girl was so shy she could hardly answer any questions. And they came to the question, what would you do if you were on a desert isle all alone with two husky, handsome, brawny young men? And they asked the English girl first, and she said, I'm, I'd be so frightened and embarrassed I'd commit suicide. Well, the American girl was a little more practical. She said, I'd look the two of them over and I would marry the stronger of the two and he'd protect me from the other one. And while all this was going on, the French girl was looking them over and rather quizzically and she said, uh, I heard the question, what's the problem? <laughs> and it seemed to me that this is what was going on. My wife was calling my lawyer and my boss was calling home and everybody was calling everybody else and I was running around the plush line sewers of New York wondering what all the shooting was about. They all seemed to have a problem. But uh, it didn't take too long for John Barleycorn to do the sales job and I think I'm on this program for two reasons. One is to let you know that we do have alcoholics in the northeastern corner of the United States and an AA program to go with it. And the other is because each of the speakers so far that I have heard has had a pretty grim time. And my hat has always been off to those who have had a rough time and fought their way back with the help of AA. I am one of those, I guess my message is to the Ephesians, that's what I call the ones who haven't had too much trouble, even if they don't come from Ephesus. I found AA just at the ideal time. I was still having fun with the screwy way I was thinking at the time I came to AA with my drinking. I was a periodic. I drank every so often. The periods were getting closer. The bouts were getting longer. But I can truthfully say that when I got to AA, I had never been arrested. I'd never lost a job, never broken up a home, never gotten any trouble of the kind that you hear in most stories. Now, I don't say that proudly. I say that, but for the grace of God, I got here at that time. And after a year in AA, it was quite obvious to me that two years later, with the speed my progression was gaining, I would definitely have had a lot more grim story to tell. I grew up in an Ivy League ghetto. <laughs> Nobody in my town went to high school. We didn't have one. We all went to prep school. And if we could make it, we went on to college. 
When I was 21 years old, they took me down to Wall Street to the Chase Bank Trust Department, and they handed me a check for $130,000, which in purchasing power today I estimate would be about $400,000. Now, in Texas, this is pocket money. <laughs> but in New York, in the Depression, it bought a lot of hamburgers. In case there's anyone wants to see me over coffee for a slight loan, I hasten to say this is long gone. <laughs> and so I was beholden to no one. I didn't drink till I was 25 years old. It seems to me most speakers I hear began, if not in upper grade school, in lower high school. But I was busy with sports and different things. And I didn't drink till I was 25. Eight years later, I went through the doors of the 24th Street Clubhouse in Manhattan and started the wonderful adventure of AA. In two years' time, the progression of this stepped up so rapidly that even idiot that I was, I should have seen what was happening. And I did see it to the point that I was running a little scared underneath. And there were times I thought I was insane when I would sit on a stool in Liggett's drinking black coffee having to go face the bosses and the office after being away for a week, thinking of the places I'd been, the people I'd been with, the money I'd wasted, the shameful things I'd done. Was I crazy? But then I got them off my back in a few months, and I would forget. We have a wonderful faculty for forgetfulness, we alcoholics. And I never set out to get drunk. I always took my first drink at the right time of day with people. And I would meet someone after work or a client. And I would, they would say, will you have a drink? And I would say to myself, this time it will be different. And if you'd been with me before and knew what happened after I took the drink with you or drank with you at dinner, you might say, Yev, yeah, don't do that. Remember what happened the last time. And I would say, oh, that's because my boss was mean, my wife was unfair, I was overtired, whatever it might be. This time will be different. Because I suffered from that appalling ignorance that all of us suffer from, even in this modern age, until we learn the facts. Until through some medium, usually coming to our first meeting, we find out, as each speaker has explained, what the true facts about alcoholism are. We suffer from this ignorance. There's no reason why we shouldn't. We're still fighting the ignorance of the public. And so I would try again because I could outsell my neighbor. I could beat him on the tennis court. I was just as intelligent. And I should be able to drink as well and capably as he did. This was the category that I put it in. And again, I would disappear for five or six days and be brought home. My drinking in volume would probably be considered rather panty waste by most of you in comparison. I will give you one illustration to identify. I have plenty of witnesses close to home that would testify that I belong here. But this was a day in the spring, it was a nice warm May day, and I bought a new suit which I'd ordered, and I went downtown to buy it. Nice, lovely, gray flannel suit. 
And when I stepped out into the sunlight before lunch with my new suit, I said, this is too good, I must not waste it. I will go and have lunch. And of course, the suit deserved a martini. And I had another martini. And then it seemed utterly ridiculous to go back and waste it on the office. What could I do? Well, I would go up to a Yankee Stadium where the Yankees were playing the Philadelphia Athletics. They were in Philadelphia then. And I took my new suit and I bought a box seat behind first base. And they are all alone in my splendor in a, on a Wednesday afternoon, rooting against the Yankees, which I hated. I was screaming my lungs off and nobody was noticing. And then I looked out in the bleachers, and there were all the fun people up there. The bleachers were packed. So I went out, and I got two cans of beer, and I went up into the bleachers, and I sat down next to the one person I should have sat next to in all that 10,000, 12,000 midweek people. He was a little smaller than I, beautiful man, because he had a pint of rye on each hip. And he, too, was rooting for the athletics. He was from Philadelphia. So we shared Boilermakers... And the athletics won, and then he came up with a very logical suggestion. The teams were going to Philadelphia to play again that next day. We should go with them and route the athletics home again. I said, this is most logical. Wait till I go downtown and get some money, and we will go over, which we did. No need to tell you what happened. You can imagine the condition of my beautiful new suit by the time they poured me home six days later. Now, if anyone had told me when I took that drink at lunch that I would do anything other than go back to work after lunch, if anyone had said in the morning, you will be drunk this afternoon and tomorrow you won't be at work, I would have either been highly irate or I would have laughed in their face because I had no intention of doing anything more than taking a drink with my luncheon. Because I was like other people, why couldn't I drink like them? I also had the misfortune of being very lucky. There was a department in my office which was a big real estate firm in New York, the insurance department. Nobody had developed it because my bosses were of the old school. They didn't feel it was ethical to seek extra lanyap from people who were entrusting them with the management of their business. We also had about 150 contractors who were getting thousands of dollars each month. And I said, in the Depression here, it's very difficult for us to do well with brokerage of real estate and so forth. We're just about keeping even. Why don't you let me go and see what I can do? So they reluctantly consented. And because I had a little independent means and could work on commission, I went out. And the owner said it was very logical that we managing the property should handle a good part of their insurance. And all the contractors said, nobody ever asked us. Of course, I thought I was a genius because within three years, that department was supporting the company. And at 29, my picture was on the financial pages of the New York Times. And I thought I was pretty great stuff. Meanwhile, my clients and the people that I was getting business from, we were going out entertaining one another and I was drinking more and more. So within two years, this constant drinking with clients and in the country, drinking socially after I was married, developed to the point where one drink triggered a five or six day disappearance from all my normal haunts. And this was the way it happened so fast 
And so bewilderingly, and I tried all the usual things, my wife, who takes one watered-down scotch before dinner, said, I won't drink if you won't drink. And then she said, I'll drink when you drink if you'll only drink when we drink together. And then we thought maybe if I only drank before dinner and didn't drink after dinner, that would be good. And then we thought maybe if you drink on a good full stomach, that would be good. And then I thought beer would do the trick. And I was six days drinking beer only. <clears throat> I was driven home by the garbage man at two in the morning at the end of the fifth day. <laughs> Trying all these things we alcoholics do, move from the country to the city, have no relation whatsoever to the problem, but I was trying something. <clears throat> my mother-in-law, my mother and my wife, and my brother-in-law got together and said, wouldn't it be a good idea if you see a psychiatrist? So I saw a psychiatrist. I went into Brooklyn. Oh, I wish a year later I could have talked with him after I learned so much from you people. But then, of course, the defenses were up. I conned him the way we do. He came up with a suggestion that because I drank in New York around the nightclubs, that if she entertained more at home, I might not be in the city so much drinking. Well, I thought this was a wonderful idea. So I drank at home as well as in the city. Now, I must go to the defense of psychiatrists because they are beginning to understand us, and this man learned a lot from me and from other patients who had gone into AA. And he was wise enough to learn from AA and to go to meetings, and he helped many people and became a great friend of AA. But I was trying all these useless, foolish efforts which were utterly unrelated to the problem. Now, what I drank I don't think is so important, but it's the kind of person I was that was mixing alcohol with this temperament of mine. I was the sort of person that if I walked to the station with a neighbor, and he told me his problems or his successes. I would be polite, pretending to listen. But I was waiting for him to shut up so I could tell him my successes or my problems. I wanted the fun people, the charming phonies. We could solve all sorts of problems over the bar. The world situation, the economy, the international problems, the big problems, you know. While my wife worried about the bill collectors and the mortgage. I didn't like these people who were stuffy and went home and were working for graduate degrees and stayed at home with their children and worked in the garden. I liked people who could be useful to me. I had absolutely no understanding of the human personality. I had too much too soon. I was more than selfish, I was self-centered. I was wrapped up in that cocoon of self-centeredness that most of us alcoholics either have or certainly develop if we stay on alcohol long enough. And this is the way I was going along with the very great acceleration in the last two years when suddenly they pulled the rug from underneath little Yev without any collusion. In every proper department of my life, they did the right thing. They confronted me with the consequences of my drinking. Each corner of the rug they grabbed and they gave it a quick yank. And they did things that we're training people to do today. Families, bosses, doctors. 
First, my wife came to me after I was sober and calm, and she was calm, and she said, you know, we can't go on this way. We have two small children growing up, and they and I are going to be in a sanitarium before you are, the way we're going. We just get our hopes up six, eight weeks, promises, promises, and you seem to be doing better, and then the boom falls, and we're becoming wrecks. Either you'll have to withdraw or I will. I'm not angry. If you'll do something about this problem, I will be at your side when I see some constructive effort. But I can't take any more promises. The next day, without any awareness of this, my bosses called me into the inter-office. And they said, you know, you've done pretty well. We like you. There's not much about you to like, but we like you. And you probably feel rather indispensable at this point. But this firm started in 1867. We were in business a long time before you came. And we feel we can go on if this keeps up. <laughs> and the doctor who brought me into the world and who'd come, and I had my own hospitalizations in my own bedroom, and would give me shots and medication to try to get me out of this, he said, I'm not coming anymore, Yeplin. I have many sick people who want to get well, and you don't seem to care to do anything much about this, and I'm not helping you. Well, this hurt me because this was a man I loved and I'd known all my life. And then the final blow, the other corner of the rug, was when the man in the bank took me aside and he said, uh, Mr. G, uh, we prefer that you don't come in at 9 o'clock in the morning, unshaven and unkempt, with a cab driver on one side and a nightclub operator on the other and expect us to bail you out of your financial difficulties. We've had it. And so, suddenly, <clears throat> with that indefinable intuition we have, I knew the jig was up. I had thought I was so charming to have around the house during my presence there, when I was there, that my wife shouldn't complain at a few absences now and then. I really thought I was producing more business than all the rest of them put together in the office, so they shouldn't get upset. <clears throat> my doctor and my bank friend treated me cruelly and unjustly, but they all meant business. They were not going to take it anymore. They confronted me with my problem. And I bless them for it. And strangely enough, by the grace of God, one of the vice presidents of our company had rented a small meeting room. Lois may remember the little meeting room in the National City Bank at 42nd Street and Madison Avenue, where about 12 AAs had a closed meeting on Wednesday night. And it was my boss that rented this room to the AAs. And he was fascinated by what they were doing he didn't understand the program because he said, I want you to meet one of these men. We're going to have lunch together. He said, I think that what they do is when they see someone at a club or something drinking too much, they talk with him and they get him to sober up. But they're doing wonderful work and I believe you'd mean it when you say you're never going to do this again and that you don't mean to go off on these episodes, but I don't understand it, but I think they do. Now, none of us come to AA throwing our hat in the air. We all come under pressure. I never knew anybody that came to AA 
happily, jauntily throwing his hat in the air. And I came with the gun in my ribs. When the boss proposes, the employee disposes. So he took me to lunch, and I met this quiet young man, Tom B., looked utterly innocuous, quiet, and he told me how on a Christmas Eve when the boss had come to a Christmas party from Chicago and he was due for a promotion after nine months on the wagon before AA, the boss had said, will you have a drink, Tom? And he had said to himself, I can't let the boss know I can't drink or I won't get that promotion. And so he took the drink and he spent Christmas riding up and down on the then 3rd Avenue elevated all day long from one end to the other, nodding in his drunken stupor. And he told me a little bit how he'd gotten over it. And then at the end of the meal, I said, this has been most impressive. This has been most enlightening. I would like to pay for this luncheon. It's been such an experience. And Tom looked at me and he said, Gardner, I'll bet you if we call you on this, you haven't got the price of the lunch. And I said, why, that son of a bitch. He's been reading my mail. I had two dollars and a quarter in my pocket. Now, he said, let me tell you something, Yev. If you do come into our fellowship, we stop being big shots. If you ever have lunch with an AA, you pay for your lunch, he pays for his lunch. Well, I've told that story very often to new men when I've had lunch with them as the first meeting with a new prospect, when they make the gesture, and we always share together. My boss got me out of trouble because he said, I started this, this is my lunch and you're my guest's. So I didn't say anything, but I was aware that my friend uh, knew his drunks. So he said, will you meet me tomorrow night for the Tuesday night meeting at the 24th Street Clubhouse? And I said, why, I would be delighted. Because I had the hope that their program would teach me how to drink once again with control. I think many of us come with that motive. The word alcoholic didn't please me but it didn't turn me off too much. So I left my office at 5 o'clock to meet him and a couple of other members for dinner beforehand, and I had to do one thing which I felt was incumbent on me out of all human decency, and that was to go to Vince, my friend in the pub where I cashed my checks and my home away from home, and tell him about the Great Reformation. So I stopped by and I said, Vince, I've got bad news for you. I'm going to stop drinking. And I thought he ought to, you know, sell the license and pull the shutters down. But he surprised me. He said, Mr. Gardner, I think it would be very good. He said, I've been worried about you. You drink too much. You cash too many checks. And I'm tired of telling your wife you're not here. But he said, no hard feelings. Have one for the road. Well, I said, this makes sense. So I had a drink. And then I felt, of course, it was essential that I buy for the rest of the group because the sad parting would be so devastating to them. So we bought back and forth, and after 25 minutes waiting, my friends went on to dinner, and five days later they put me in a car and got me home. Meanwhile, my sponsor had told, talked to my wife. 
He ultimately became the godfather of my youngest daughter, who I think is one of the first, earliest AA babies. He told her, you know, this may do Yev good. He may profit by this when he ultimately gets to his first meeting. Because he really seemed sincere, and he started out for the meeting, but he took one drink. And he'll learn about that one drink when he gets to the meeting. So he tried to comfort her. And at that first meeting, I began the transforming process of Alcoholics Anonymous. A week later than intended, we walked down a long corridor into a little smoke-filled room. could hardly see the people for the blue smoke. And there in one evening, I learned more about what was wrong with me than I had been able to find out from my pastor, God bless him, from Dr. Merwath, God bless him, from people I had sought in good counsel and from others who were trying to help me but who were as ignorant as I was. Every speaker that night said the same thing. One drink for an alcoholic is too many and 50 is not enough. Because we have lost the ability to handle alcohol. It doesn't matter how long we stay sober or what happens when we don't drink. It's what happens when alcohol goes into our body. We have an allergy of the body. Well, this explained to me immediately, being a periodic, why it didn't matter if I went through the summer months in tennis tournaments and going to the beach and outdoors and stayed sober as soon as the indoor season started and I took a drink, these episodes began again. And I realized from that night on that never again would I be able to say, this time it will be different. I was convinced about what they said. I don't know why, except that my pattern fitted so thoroughly. And I don't think anyone's ever had a slip that really was convinced in his heart that he was so constituted that he had this allergy of the body. They likened it to the diabetic. They said, this isn't a moral issue. It's not a question of your willpower, your charm, your intelligence, your ability, or anything else. You're like a diabetic who can't take sweets and sugar into his system in large quantities without getting pain. And then they said, but it's not as easy as that. If we could just say we can't drink anymore because we have a physical dysfunction and go off blithely on our way, you wouldn't need to come back. But the trouble is this allergy of the body is coupled with an obsession of the mind, which drives us to go on and on trying to prove that we can once again drink as we might have drunk at one time, or like other people who still have control. And we're like people who put their hand on a hot stove and continue to prove that that stove will not burn. Whereas a five-year-old child, if he touched that stove, would have sense enough to give it a wide berth from then on. We have a compulsive, addictive need to go on drinking, and that calls for a program. A program which will help us grow away from the need for alcohol and be comfortable with sobriety. Well, that made sense. 
And then I liked the next thing they said. There are no musts to this program. Oh, what a joy that was to the ears of an alcoholic. Everybody had been saying, can't you see this? Don't you see this? You got to do that. You should do this. You ought to do that. Why don't you do this? And they said, you don't have to do anything. It's a suggested program of 12 steps, which you take as you can understand it as you go along. There is one basic qualification we feel that you should have, and that is to admit your life has become unmanageable because of alcohol. But other than that, you do it your own way. And if you find that we're not your cup of tea at this point, go away. Do your experiments in the field. If the lectures prove out in the laboratory of the saloon circuit, Come back, and you'll be welcome. Well, I liked this. No pressure for the first time. And, of course, the atmosphere of understanding, the feeling that these people were interested and concerned about me and that they had been there really helped. So I got a feeling of worth. And they said, it doesn't matter to any new person who comes here, there's someone who will top your story, no matter how lousy you feel, how guilty you feel, how terrible the things are you've done. And I was feeling pretty miserable that night. I had what we call the flu today, plus a hangover, plus some bill collectors, and my wife's relationships were rather tenuous at the moment. They said it could have been worse, no matter how bad it is. It reminded me of the story of the guys that belonged to the poker club, you know. And every Thursday night they'd meet, and there was this one fellow who always said, no matter how bad your troubles were, don't worry, Bill, it could have been worse. And they got very tired of this Pollyanna stuff. So one Thursday, one of the men went home and found his wife with another man, killed them both, and committed suicide. So they said, oh, we got old Joe now when he comes back next week. So next week they gathered together and they said, Joe, did you hear about what happened? He said, yes, it's too bad, but it could have been worse. He said, what do you mean it could have been worse? There are three people killed. Well, he said, it could have been worse. It could have been the Thursday before and it would have been me. <laughs> and so <clears throat> I got a feeling of hope. And a feeling of worth that first night. And some of them said, you know, Yev, you still got two shirts. You still got two cars. You may find it hard to identify. You may have to be hit a little more. We hope you can identify because if we had found AA and it had been existing when we were at your stage, we could have saved an awful lot of damage. And I only say it was but for the grace of God that instead of seeking the things that were different, I was fascinated by these stories and by the people and what they had done to recover. And somehow I felt, with all I still had to lose, if these people could put the pieces together, I should be able to do something. And at the second meeting, I learned from Bill why... Tom had said, when he gets to the meeting, he'll understand what happened on the way when he didn't get here. Because Bill told a story of when he was going duck hunting 
someplace, I guess, up in New England. It was very cold, and in the morning he got down and he was going to have a drink to keep warm and then go shooting. And another man was doing the same thing. <clears throat> so Bill had a drink or two, as he told it then. And the other man had a drink or two. And then Bill said, let's have another before we go. And the man said, no, I've got to get going. I came to duck hunt. And Bill said, well, I thought I'd have another one. And that evening I slept in the attic of the inn where we were drinking at the bar that day. Because I started out to go duck hunting or hunting, whatever he was hunting, I can't remember, but I think it was duck shooting. And once I'd taken a drink, all intent to follow through what I started out to do was destroyed. And that had happened to me when I was on my way to see clients, when I was on my way to go to some event. If I stopped for a drink, all of that could be put off till tomorrow. And I sincerely intended to meet those people that first night when I stopped off at Vince's place. And right away I identified with what Bill had gone through when he set out to have that first drink and go on his way. And so... My wife and I left, and she said, how wrong we've been. We've tried all these foolish things of drinking together and drinking before dinner and all of this. It had nothing to do with it. This is a sickness. You just physically have lost the tolerance or ability to handle alcohol, and they have a program. And I'm with you on it. And so we came back and back. And after a few meetings... They always said, this is a program of action. We don't sit in the bleachers and watch the ball game. We act. We get in the program. Do something. Clean the ashtrays. Help with the coffee. Talk to someone. A little while go out with an older member on a 12-step call, but keep your lips zipped. Keep busy. Well, this was like the starting gun to a racehorse or a track meet participate. I took them literally. <clears throat> About two weeks later, there was a call for a speaker to go over to the psycho ward at Kings County Hospital, our city hospital, because the boys had an hour out of stir. They didn't care much about anything so long as they could get out and smoke, and anybody who could came, come, would come, why, they didn't pay much attention. So I went over and started to talk with them, and I gave them a little talk about drinking at the Harvard Club, and that didn't seem to register very well. <clears throat> and then they asked questions about peraldehyde, and I thought they were talking about formaldehyde. <laughs> and they asked about Demerol and Nembutol, and I'd never heard of any of these things before, but fortunately a, an old-timer, Joe Stern, who was a graduate of this ward, came by... And he saw this, and with some amusement for a little while, then he came over and he said, Yeah, but I think that it's a little early for you to give this lecture. Let me finish up for you. <laughs> I wasn't daunted at the closed meeting the following week. I had some suggestions which would revise and improve the big book, one of the chapters. <laughs> and about ten days later, in this little clubhouse, we had volunteer members on the phone. A call came in at five o'clock. A 65-year-old lady out in Elmont, Long Island, had called in very drunk, but she sincerely wanted help, and there was no one there, and they said, we need someone out. And I said, that's my 
beat out there. It's not too far away. I have my white horse outside saddled, and I buckled on my silver sword, and I dashed out to Elmont, and here was she was when I got there. Chivalry for, forbids my saying how she looked, but a mess in bed, too drunk really to be coherent, and her husband came in from work, and he hadn't heard of the twelfth step. <laughs> So, uh, I had to quickly call to get some women out to protect my honor. But you see, I was on what I call the legwork phase of this transforming progress process. And my sponsors by this time felt that it was... There was need for action, so the next meeting they put me in a corner and put a hand on each knee. I had two wonderful sponsors, Tom and another one who was a real straight shooter, tough talker. He put me in my place. And they said, look, Gardner, we told you to participate, but you're abusing the privilege. Now, before you try to sober up everybody in the northeastern Atlantic coast, we suggest you sit down, look at those 12 steps, and listen you're supposed to work on yourself before you go out rushing about because you're going up like a rocket and you're going to fizzle out very soon and get drunk. And this is true. We should participate, but not the way I was doing it. The same frenetic activity that I transferred from the bars into AA. And I've seen many people like this who didn't perhaps have the sponsors with the hand on the knee Old Tom or old Bill or old Joe, we, we have him at home. He's out at every meeting. He's speaking. He's up at the hospital. He's a wonderful worker. And suddenly, after eight or nine months, old Joe was taken drunk. Not old Joe. He's the busiest member we have. But in the eighth month, Joe had an emotional crisis. He broke a shoelace. <laughs> and he got taken drunk because he never stopped running long enough to look at the steps. And my sponsor said to me, we commend particularly the fourth step. We realize that with your impeccable character, you undoubtedly feel you have no, no defects to remedy, but if you'll sit still long enough and listen, perhaps you can detect something that might be helpful. And what they were really doing, I realize, was... They were putting me into the heart and core of this program, the transforming process of Alcoholics Anonymous, where we're supposed to get some insight into ourselves to determine the things that put pressure on us, that build to the point where the valve has to blow, and suddenly there's a glass in our hand. We have to have a willingness to look at ourselves, we have to have a willingness to face up to this. And I must admit that whether it was through lack of willingness or fear of facing myself, for the first year I found it very hard to identify with many of the things that the speakers talked about in the sense of what they had in the way of personal emotional hang-ups or personal defects or character defects or problems and what they had done about them. 
But as more of them spoke of these in different ways, sooner or later one of them would say something that would say it in a way that I could identify. They would say, all alcoholics are grandiose. Well, I said, I'm not grandiose. I'm just an easygoing little guy that likes people and likes to get around. I'm never getting any fights or anything. And I had to hear some illustrations of this before I realized that on my very last episode, I was in a little beer stube on the east side of New York in Manhattan, buying drinks for a lot of people who had to listen to me. I was buying the drinks about the biggest deal I was going to consummate while I sat there doing nothing about it. And at the same moment, up the avenue, the bosses were meeting to decide, shall we fire him now or when he gets back to the office? (laughs) I wasn't grandiose. No. But soon I saw that these, these things were definitely typical of me. They spoke of honesty with yourself. They used to say, we're masters of the art of self-deception, we alcoholics. I could rationalize anything I wanted to do with the most justifiable rationalization. My wife says, I still haven't lost the talent, but it's in less harmful ways now, like getting out of taking out the garbage or something. And I began to see things that I was doing to justify things. I wouldn't argue with anybody. I just never would give in. I'd quietly say, you do what you want to do. I will do you, I'll do what I want to do. No compromise, no flexibility. And if I wanted to do something, I would rationalize it. And sometimes if it was something I shouldn't do, I'd take a drink, and then I'd say it was because of the drinking that I did it. And you people taught me to get insight into this personal dishonesty characteristic of conning myself and conning people. Because I'd become a hustling con man, trying to walk a little faster than the next person, get ahead, get a bigger home, do a little better. The American way of success, which was the great thing when I came out of college. And it took time to identify with these things. And then people said, all alcoholics are emotionally immature. We had some great philosophers in that group. And when they said this, my hackles would rise. I'm not emotionally immature. I'm a junior associate in my business. I belong to several clubs. I have two cars. I own my own home. And besides, I have two kids. How can I be emotionally immature? I didn't know what in hell they were talking about. But looking back, I can see they were touching a quivering nerve because this was exactly at the root of most of my trouble. I had the emotional maturity of a 13-year-old. I wish I had the money now that I invested in dollars and drinks with band leaders and piano players to play my song when I came into a grill room. (laughs) Gardner had arrived. Nobody else in the place knew what it meant except the piano player or the band leader and myself, but my ego filled the room. And when I heard some other speakers speak of this, I realized this, this is not a mature objective to spend all the time and money I was for this. I loved it when people, the hat check girls and some of the better bistros would say, no check for Mr. G, you know, a big shot, Hollywood star or something. Isn't this a wonderful set of values to have, a man in his early 30s with a family to support and look after? 
the desire to impress. My wife said, we need a vacuum cleaner and new kitchen curtains. I said, who can see vacuum cleaners and kitchen curtains? We have 22 payments on that red convertible in the driveway before we get any kitchen curtains. People could see the car, you see. The neighbors could be impressed. And I think one of the greatest releases, next to being released from dependence on alcohol, is the release from being feeling the need to impress people. My wife says sometimes when I go off, she says, now, just be natural, someone may like you. <laughs> and I think this uh, really fits the bill. I have a little sign on our kitchen bulletin board. I got it uh, down in West Virginia in some AA rehab house. We keep it there. It says, don't take yourself too damn seriously. And we look at that every day. This helps. And one thing about AA that's so wonderful, we learn to laugh at ourselves in time. It wasn't funny then, but when we look back, we can laugh. And so I learned other things. I learned the capacity to understand. We talk about love, and that is the key. We talk about love, and every speaker here has spoken of this because it is the vital, throbbing heartbeat of this movement, I think. But I didn't know what that meant. I put a corny interpretation on it when people spoke of it in the beginning. And finally it came to me, with the help of my sponsors, when I used to get outraged at some of the things people said in the management of the group or the club or whatever, if you were in his background with the problems he'd had living alone and been through what he's been, you'd be even un more unbearable than he is and more unbearable than you are yourself right now. Walk in his shoes for a while before you condemn. To me, love, the agape type of love, is the capacity to understand. And now it's reached the point where in the morning I get up and I say, Lord, who do you want to love today through me? And so we go on with this transforming process and we come to know our strengths and our weaknesses. I think too often we take the fourth step and we look for all the liabilities. And we have assets. I always wanted to be the captain of the team. If I didn't do the perfect job, but I did a pretty good job. It was a failure because it wasn't perfect. And so I would get distressed and build, build, build pressure. It got so, after I came into AA six months since they put me in it, they all knew I was in it. They spoke to me frankly about it. They said, you know, Gordon, we made book on you for the last year of your drinking as to when you would blow your stack and get drunk. I, I said, what do you mean? Well, they said, you'd get a light in your eye, you'd get a flush on your cheeks, you'd get that frenetic tearing around the place. And we knew something had to blow, the valve had to give. And you never let us down once. Somebody always won the pool. <laughs> so these were the things that were building up. And I had to learn from you people how to handle them, first to recognize them, and then to get comfortable with them. But not to just look at the black side of the ledger, but to realize that I had assets and to accept myself for what I was. 
the good and the bad. And the important thing to me about this transforming process of Alcoholics Anonymous is what I have seen in others. I can recognize change and growth in others much better than I, than in myself. And I have seen people having crises in their lives after a few years on this program, a death in the family, the loss of a dear one, a son in the war, a job loss at an age where you can't get another job, all sorts of crises. And if you saw those people at a meeting, unless they told you, you wouldn't realize. Because they're handling the situation like a mature, normal human being without the reflex action of having a drink in their hand, but learning through this program to meet crisis, to handle their emotions, and to grow comfortable in their sobriety. And that, I can't explain it, to me is the recovery process. Sobriety is the cornerstone. If you stay sober and don't change, as one man said, he'd had a first year anniversary and all the family had given him a party with a cake and after the family went home he was undressing and his wife was with him and she said Ray it's been wonderful that you had such a wonderful year and a nice party and everything but I got to be honest with you I have to tell you something he said what's that she said Ray you're the same old SOB you were a year ago <laughs> you're sober a year but you haven't changed a bit you've just been pulling calendars off the wall and he said, that shook me up, but it got me to thinking, and I started to work the steps. But this process of recovery is very hard to describe, and I wouldn't attempt to describe it. And for a while, I didn't want that first year to hear too much about God as we understood him and higher powers. I liked the practical part of the program. I liked the keeping busy. I liked the helping others. I like the telephone therapy, I like the meetings, and I like the people. But when people gave a talk like that wonderful talk of George's last night, I sort of turned off my hearing aid. I wasn't ready, I guess. But after about a year, I noticed that the Georges of the group that spoke frankly of relinquishment, of relinquishing themselves, to a power greater than themselves, seem to have a more serene, solid recovery and sobriety than many of the others. So I listened to them a little more, and then I talked to them over coffee. And they gave me books to read. And they got me outside of AA, some of them, to hear people like Emmett Fox, who spoke about personal spiritual growth without alcoholism connected. It was an easy transition from the AA meetings. I started going back to church with my wife, and I began to see what it was these people meant when they spoke of reliance on the man upstairs, the senior partner, their higher power, whom most of them chose to call God. It was a personal relationship with God, meaningful to them, not some mystical thing not somebody up on Mount Olympus, but a God whom, with whom they had a personal relationship and to whom they had turned their lives and their will over. And then I began to look at that 11th step. 
At first I said, I can't pray. And then a gal gave a talk and she told of the same problem. She said, I learned by simply saying, help me this day to stay sober, Lord, and at night giving thanks if I succeeded. And from that practice daily, I began to develop other techniques of communication with my higher power. And I said, that makes sense to me. And then others spoke of demonstrations of when they had let go and let God things that had happened in their life that they could not have managed themselves. And I began to have a few demonstrations which were more convincing. And I began to see that all of these changes of people coming into AA after me that I could see when they came in broken and defeated at their first meeting, and then over the months, the light in their eye, mending their fences, getting things together. No, they weren't free of problems, but they were changing. And there must be a force at work. There must be something beside Mary and Bill and John that was at work, a dynamo of which the members were the connecting wires. And as these demonstrations occurred, I came under the influence of certain people, a chaplain out in the front lines in battle, of Sam Shoemaker, God bless him, one of our early friends at Calvary. And I began to get a little bit more interested in that aspect of the program. And I learned to develop a personal relationship with God. And then amazing things happened. The hustling con man began to find it very unsatisfactory, very difficult to struggle in the New York marts of trade with the tactics that were necessary for success. Nothing really dishonest, but if this program gets you, these things become very uncomfortable. So I left my firm, where I was really set up for life, and I went with Marty to try to help bring some knowledge of this problem to people who might get it at that perfect time when I did, just before we got to the edge of the cliff and things began to crack up. And a few years later, my rector in the church said, the curate's leaving, we can't afford a curate. Yeah, why don't you become a perpetual deacon in our Episcopal Church? I said, Father, I haven't got time to go to the bathroom these days, let alone study. He said, well, we can make it easy for you because under the old man's canon, older men with families can study and take the canonical exams when the time comes when the tutors think they're ready. And so I said, I'll try it. And I went to the bishop's retreat for postulants with no commitment after talking with him. And he had these meditations. Twice a day, he'd get them out in the country, under the trees. And in one of them he said, God never asks anybody to do anything without giving him the power to carry it out. And there were 72 men there, and I thought he was looking right at me. And maybe he was. So I started out one exam by one exam. And for five and a half years, I didn't do anything on the Long Island Railroad or on an airplane or on a field trip when I had a moment but study. And in 1956, I became ordained. 
And I stayed a perpetual deacon until three months ago when I was ordained a priest. So this hustling con man came from the marts of New York business through this transforming process to become a priest in the church. The most amazing things do happen. In summing this up, we have a practical program that appeals to the alcoholic because of its understanding and its practicableness. And then we come to clear our thinking up and to get out of that shell of self-centeredness we reach tonight when we're sitting there listening, I hope some speaker tonight will help this new member and not me. We're losing ourselves in another person. And we get to know ourselves and accept ourselves. And we superimpose all this on a personal relationship with a God as we understand him. Everything I know in AA I've stolen from somebody else. And a wonderful man down in New Orleans once said, he summed up the program by saying, I think this program is summarized in the philosophies of three great men. Socrates, whose credo was, know thyself. And Marcus Aurelius, whose credo was, control thyself. And this is pretty hard for us alcoholics. And then the words of the master who taught us to deny ourselves. And you know, we can resist everything but temptation. We don't have too much discipline. And we have to learn those things, and I'm still learning them. And I'm amazed, as long as I'm around, to see the changes in people, some of whom I would have marked off as hopeless pathological alcoholics. But this program works. And we don't come throwing our hat in the air. But I do believe that if anyone will stay with this program, he will develop this personal relationship with God. I think there's one thing that newcomers should be warned, however, before I close. The founders put a kicker in this program. It's hidden away. Many of you older members will have experienced it. But someday you may be walking to work. You may be in the mountains. You may be going to the beach. You may come down to breakfast. And suddenly it will hit you right between the eyes. You know, I like this new way of life. I prefer this to that old quicksand of alcoholism, that mess, the hangovers, the alibis, trying to remember these stories, all of that confusion. I like it so much I question whether if they told me I could drink again, liquor would mean that much to me. I prefer it. No, we don't come throwing our hat in the air. But when that day re is reached, when we prefer this way of life to any other, the compulsion, the obsession for alcohol is broken. And when you put it on the basis of preference, John Barleycorn hasn't much of a chance. Thank you very much.
Yeah, on behalf of on behalf of the conference, we thank you. From the bottom of our hearts.